Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. Dr. Ewan Cameron embodied the title of a mad scientist in ways few ever could. When learning of his practices, Ewan Cameron exhibits an unmistakable sadism that seems to eclipse even that of Sidney Gottlieb. Throughout his experiments, Cameron delivered massive quantities of drugs to unwitting patients under the guise that he was curing them of ailments, such as postpartum depression or anxiety. These patients would come to Dr. Cameron for help, entrusting him to deliver the best care possible, and instead, they were subjected to nothing short of torture. He delivered doses of LSD up to 40 times its normal dosage. Patients were regularly strapped to beds and adorned with football helmets, containing tape recorders mounted inside. These helmets were fixed in such a way that the patients were unable to remove The tape recorders inside would repeat short phrases to a patient literally hundreds and thousands of times, all while they were physically restrained, bound to hospital beds, and chemically incapacitated with hallucinogenic drugs. Drug comas made these people easier to control. These psychic driving sessions, as he called them, would regularly last for weeks on end, though in one case, they lasted for three consecutive months. Just imagine that, listener, strapped to a chair, a football helmet taped to your head. You have sound piped into your ears, repeating the same phrases over and over and over again, all while hallucinogenic drugs are coursing through your body. I don't think you can imagine that. I don't think anyone can imagine that for three months, nor should they. If you've ever experienced hallucinogenic drugs... I can say from experience, moments can feel like they last for days, days on end. So being strapped there for three months in real time, it must have felt like a literal eternity. And I don't say that lightly. It really must have felt like a literal eternity. And it probably goes without saying, but these experiments caused permanent psychological damage to most of his patients. To put it another way, people lost their minds undergoing the torment they received from Dr. Ewan Cameron. Velma Orlikow was one of those patients. She visited Dr. Cameron to speed up her recovery from postpartum depression. In an interview with the Washington Post, she had this to say about the long-term effects of being subjected to these type of psychic driving sessions. I suffer from chronic depression which sometimes becomes acute. I call those periods my black holes. 
I don't see anybody and I won't leave the house. I can't read and I used to love to read. I can't write a letter. I have unexplained fears. I wake up at night afraid and I don't know why. I'm trying to limp through my life like someone who's been in a terrible accident that leaves them crippled. Dr. Cameron could be cruel if you didn't do exactly what he wanted. He was a god figure to the patients. He'd say to me, What's the matter with you, Lassie? I still hear this voice sometimes. Louis Weinstein visited Dr. Cameron for anxiety. Unable to speak for himself, Louis's son described Louis as, quote, A lost soul. My father has no social sense. How to keep clean. How to carry on a conversation. They took his self away from him. The frustration is incredible. It's impossible to know, to ever know, what kind of life my father might have led. What kind of lives all these people might have led. If this had never happened. So much has been stolen from my father and everyone like him. In the book, In the Name of Science, A History of Secret Programs, Medical Research, and Human Experimentation, it was revealed that children were being sexually abused while under the care of Cameron. In at least one case, the child's sexual abuse as video recorded and used as blackmail against officials to ensure that these experiments would continue to receive funding. Dr. Ewan Cameron died in 1966 from a heart attack while mountain climbing with his son. Sidney Gottlieb wanted to control the human mind with drugs. This is true. But hallucinogenic substances administered by healthcare providers was not his only plan. Mastering the art of mind control could require numerous different approaches. Also, on Gottlieb's agenda was testing specific surveillance techniques on the intoxicated unwitting. He tapped George White, an ex-OSS captain and federal narcotics agent, to oversee one of his secret surveillance experiments. White was someone who didn't always go by the book. He seemed to believe to procuring the ends by any means necessary. To this end, he was perfect for the CIA's deeply unlawful projects. The name of this MKUltra subproject was Operation Midnight Climax, began in 1954. In the beginning, George White secured two Greenwich Village apartments in New York City. These were often referred to as safe houses. He was given $4,000 to furnish the safe houses. The idea was to make them appear upscale and lavish. He lured unsuspecting men to safe houses and provided cigarettes and alcohol, often laced with what the CIA referred to as knockout drops of LSD liquid marijuana, and other drugs. Two-way mirrors were installed in the safe house, along with microphones, cameras, and other recording equipment. To the unsuspecting, it just appeared as an apartment, a behind-the-scenes his every move was being recorded to use against him later. Initially, he just offered the victims food, drinks, and cigarettes, then interrogated them under the influence of the covertly dosed substances contained within. He'd then report his findings back to Gottlieb. This safe house proved too conspicuous and operations ultimately had to be suspended. Not just once, but a number of times this happened as local law enforcement was catching on and not comfortable with the arrangement. George White was transferred from New York to San Francisco 
where he secured a new safe house. He brought some of the furniture from his setup at the safe houses in New York, but this time decorated the apartments to look more like a brothel. Sex workers were recruited by White to help carry out his new operation. These women would do his bidding in exchange for favors they called chits. Each time a prostitute did what he asked, he would owe them a favor. If, for example, a prostitute was arrested, she would provide her arresting officer with George White's phone number. This was essentially a get-out-of-jail-free card. Police knew who White was and would call to confirm. If White owed the girl a favor, he would instruct the police department to release her, and they would comply. The favors sex workers were doing for White involved luring men back to this faux apartment and engaging in sex with them for money. Often these were married men, or men working for a local company. Visits like this were expected to be discreet, for obvious reasons. It was of utmost importance to the victim that such behavior never be found out. George White found that at the post-coital period was when a man seemed to be most vulnerable. Specifically, the men didn't exactly know what to think when a sex worker wanted to engage in a conversation after sex was over. Sources for John Marks in his book, The Search for the Manchurian Candidate, explains how things in the CIA safe house brothel worked. Quote, Most men who go to prostitutes are prepared for the fact that, after the fact, she's beginning to work to get herself out of there, so she can get back on the street to make more money. To find a prostitute who is willing to stay is a hell of a shock to anyone used to prostitutes. It was a tremendous effect on the guy. It's a boost to his ego if she's telling him that he was really neat and she wants to stay for a few more hours. Most of the time, he gets pretty vulnerable. What the hell's he going to talk about? Not the sex. So he starts to talk about his business. It's at this time she can lead him gently. But you have to train a prostitute to do that. Their natural inclination is to do exactly the opposite. We didn't know in those days about hidden sadism and all that sort of stuff. We learned a lot about human nature in that bedroom. We began to understand that when people wanted sex, it wasn't just what we had thought of. You know, the missionary position. We started to pick up on knowledge that could be used in operation. But with a lot of it, we never figured out any way to use it operationally. We just learned all these ideas did not come to us at once, but evolving over three or four years in which these studies were going on. Things emerged which we tried. Our knowledge of prostitutes' behaviors became pretty damn good. This comes across now that somehow we were just playing around. We just found all these exotic ways to waste the taxpayers' money on satisfying our hidden urges. I'm not saying that watching prostitutes was not exciting or something like that. But what I am saying was, there was a purpose to the whole business. Prostitutes usually collected $100 per client they lured back and successfully drugged. This was paid by George White via the CIA, but was done off the record. Each drug subject was monitored and recorded for the purposes of using sexual blackmail as an interrogation technique against enemies. Still being used as test subjects were Gottlieb's undesirables. People from lower-income homes or drug addicts. These were the people who would be least likely to make a fuss, according to Gottlieb. In his mind, subjects from these backgrounds were used to being drugged. And 
even if they did report something out of the norm, they were unlikely to be believed. Operation Midnight Climax drew to a close with the shutting down of the safe house in 1963, approximately nine years after it began. It remains one of the more infamous aspects of MKUltra. There were most certainly other sub-projects within MKUltra that were worth exploring. The problem is, most of them were reduced to hearsay. As a result of destroyed documentation and, undoubtedly, experiments that were just never documented, in 1987, the United States District Court judge granted the estate of Harold Blower approximately $700,000. In a statement, she said, This court is faced with assessing a sad episode in the conduct of the United States government and a personal tragedy for an unsuspecting victim and his family. Rather than admit its role in Blower's death, the government covered up its involvement in the affair. Thus, this opinion is issued today rather than in the early 1950s when the death occurred. The primary reason the Army covered up its involvement was to avoid embarrassment and adverse publicity. The family of Frank Olson was understandably devastated at what had happened. They had long since suspected that Frank's death had been the fault of the CIA. In 1977, their suspicions were validated when Sidney Gottlieb testified before the Senate that he and the CIA had in fact been responsible for the death of Dr. Frank Olson. President Gerald R. Ford personally apologized to the Olson family, and they received a settlement of approximately $750,000. Sidney Gottlieb was granted immunity for his testimony. He died at his home in 1999, following a history of heart problems. Perhaps the most significant bit of damage in the aftermath and discovery of MKUltra was done to the image of the CIA itself and to the United States government. Numerous books came out on the subject of the CIA's secret human experiments. It isn't to say that conspiracy theories didn't exist before Watergate. They certainly did. But Watergate, followed by the discovery of MKUltra, left conspiracy theorists validated they lend some credence to things conspiracy theorists were saying. Since we found out about MKUltra, our overall perception of our government has trended downward. There have been good years and bad ones, but generally speaking, the distrust grows more and more as time goes on. On September 11, 2001, the United States was the victim of a terrorist attack, perpetrated by an organization known as Al-Qaeda under the leadership of terrorist Osama bin Laden. The first thing that happened was people got afraid. Naturally, following a terrorist attack, people have every right to be afraid. But amid that fear was suspicion. Had the Bush administration ignored the signs? Did they do it on purpose in hopes that the terrorist attack would grant them easy entry into the war with Iraq? Worse yet, many wondered had they planned and orchestrated the attack themselves. Now... I'm not suggesting that's the case, but it's at least understandable, given the history, why some came to that conclusion, and how those seeds were planted. Not helping matters is the fact that we did get into a war with Iraq, and indeed, it was predicted on information later determined to be false. Perhaps it was an honest mistake, perhaps not. The bottom line is, governments are no different than people, in that... When they're demonstrably dishonest on numerous occasions, they become difficult to trust. 
And Sidney Gottlieb helped demonstrate this when he determined that these are not human beings. These are drug addicts. They're poor. They're insane. But they were people like you and I. And since 9-11, we've gone rampant with labeling people. One might think the CIA has learned its lesson following the MKUltra years that human rights should never be violated, even amid major scares. Alas, a new label became prominent after the attack on the World Trade Center and Pentagon. Terrorist. Not unlike the word communist, terrorist became a catch-all for anyone suspected in being involved in anti-American activity. Though the issue was similar in that respect, it was complicated by the fact that terrorism really was a threat. We'd seen it. We'd watched it happen on our televisions. The lucky ones got to watch these terrorist attacks unfold on the news. The unlucky ones watched it happen right before their eyes. The unluckier still died in these attacks, or decades after, from side effects due to helping with the attacks. The government, along with the CIA, felt they had to respond, and they did so. Most everyone agrees MKUltra was a terrible thing all around and a dark chapter in American history. But the government's response to 9-11 was not met with such universal disdain. Many people felt their response was a reasonable answer to a difficult question. How do we stop terrorism before it starts? Many others vehemently disagreed, condemning it. How you feel? Well, I leave that up to you, listener. Most of the time when people speak of torture by the CIA in the post-9-11 war on terror... The first thing that comes to mind is waterboarding. Indeed, waterboarding was used. The debate as to whether or not waterboarding is torture still seems to be a point of contention for some. Though, at this point, it seems that the majority agree on it being torture. Waterboarding is the act of putting a cloth over the nose and mouth of a detainee and pouring a steady stream of water over the cloth to constrict the airway passages and simulate drowning. It is essentially a way to strangle someone without having to put your hands around their neck. Is that torture? Yeah, probably. That said, whether you believe waterboarding to be torture or not, the interrogation techniques by the CIA on suspected terrorists often transcended the often debated practice of waterboarding and veered into the areas of unquestionable torture. Simply put, some may not consider waterboarding to be torture, whether it is or isn't, the CIA still engaged in other acts that cannot be seen as anything other than torture. Whether you as a person believe acts of torture are justified in the capturing and interrogation of suspected terrorists is something you must decide for yourself. But, regardless of that, there is no question of whether or not torture was used post-9-11. It unequivocally was. In the wake of the attacks, there was a general fear within the CIA that a second wave of terrorist attacks was coming to American soil. CIA officials weren't sure what the attacks might consist of or when they might happen, but they were certain more attacks were on the horizon. The release of anthrax upon American citizens was one of the major worries. I remember it directly affecting my Halloween that year. It's difficult to blame them for such a worry. After all, Al-Qaeda was not only boastful after 9-11, they were openly assuring everyone they weren't finished. In the book Black Sight, The CIA in a Post-9-11 World, 
Author Philip Mudd describes the attitude and sense of personal responsibility to thwart the subsequent terrorist attacks. One official expressed his thoughts that the American people had given them for the first attack, but wouldn't forgive them the second time. Many CIA officials felt a sense of shame and frustration that Al-Qaeda had been waging war on the United States for some time, but nothing was being done in response until now. Outside the CIA, people wanted retribution. May have been the last time America was unanimous in a single desire which transcended politics. At the time, the overwhelming feeling in the U.S. was that people wanted Osama bin Laden captured and held accountable for this unimaginable act of terrorism. Also, any further acts of terrorism in the future absolutely needed to be prevented. That much everyone could agree on. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Around this time, the director of Central Intelligence was George J. Tenet, originally appointed during the Clinton administration. Obscura is brought to you by HelloFresh. You've got New Year's goals, and HelloFresh is here to help you achieve them. Skip the grocery store and take control of your time and budget with delicious recipes delivered right to your door. With HelloFresh, eating well in the new year can be stress-free and delicious. With over 35 weekly recipes, they have options you're looking for to help you achieve your goals. Choose calorie-smart and carb-smart recipes, or even customize select meals by swapping proteins or sides, upgrading your proteins, or adding protein to a veggie dish. Listener, I personally love HelloFresh. The meals are easy to make, and they're delicious. They are the biggest factor in stopping me from heading to the fast food restaurant and eating at home instead. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Obscura21 and use code Obscura21 for 21 free meals plus free shipping. 
That's HelloFresh.com slash Obscura21 and use code Obscura21 for 21 free meals plus free shipping. Obscura is sponsored by Talkspace. Getting the help you need doesn't have to be a challenge. Talkspace is so convenient and accessible, you can get mental health care with or without insurance to fit your needs. It's important to prioritize your mental health and wellness every day because when you work on yourself, you'll start to feel positive changes in all areas of your life. The long-term effects of therapy can give you the tools to deal with challenges as they arise, strengthen your relationships, and give you a more optimistic outlook on life. There's no better time to invest in yourself than right now. I personally love therapy. It has helped me through some hard times, and I can't suggest it to you enough, listener. I mean that. And listener... I wholeheartedly recommend Talkspace for therapy. You can sign up online and get personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. You can text, video, or send voice messages to your licensed therapist. So it's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions from the comfort of your home. And hey, as a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com. And use code OBSCURA to match with a licensed therapist today. Go to Talkspace.com and use the code OBSCURA to get $100 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's OBSCURA and Talkspace.com. The early days of interrogation at Salt Pit were without much oversight. Interrogations weren't being closely monitored or regulated, and so conditions became deplorable. Many of these prisoners, especially in late 2001 and early 2002, were not even Al-Qaeda members, but lower-level captures from the Taliban. This doesn't mean that some of them were not worth interrogating, but their intel was never considered key in locating Osama bin Laden. They had information on the Taliban and on some other escaping members of Al-Qaeda, but they were not in possession of major breakthrough intelligence. Now... It's difficult to forget the fact that these were terrorists and terrorist associates being detained, but unlike the victims of MKUltra, we're not talking about tennis players or college students or psychiatric patients dealing with anxiety. We're talking about mass murderers and their accomplices. Far be it from anyone to feel much sympathy for these people, but looking at an article from the Daily Beast around the conditions in which these prisoners were kept... Sympathy or lack thereof is irrelevant. The line between interrogation and pure sadism was clearly crossed, and it's clear the CIA was violating human rights. Maybe there are people that can reconcile this kind of treatment as a means to an end. But even if so, they set a disturbing precedent. Quote, The CIA was alerted of allegations that anal exams at COBOL were conducted with excessive force An attorney was asked to follow up, but no records indicate what happened next. Agency records said that one of the detainees housed at Cobalt, Mustafa Al-Hasawi, was later diagnosed with chronic hemorrhoids, an anal fissure, and symptomatic rectal prolapse. Nude prisoners were kept in the central area and walked around as a form of humiliation. Detainees were hosed down while shackled naked and placed in rooms with temperatures as low as 59 degrees Fahrenheit. Loud music played constantly. In one case, a detainee was dragged around naked along the dirt floor. Detainee Gal Ruman's clothes were cut off, 
and CIA interrogators put a hood on Rahman's head. They slapped and punched him, and when he fell, dragged him through the dirt. Rahman was later found dead, with hypothermia, the suspected cause. One senior interrogator said that detainees could go for days or weeks without anyone looking at him, and this team found a detainee who had been chained in a standing position for 17 days. Some of the detainees at Cobalt, quote, literally looked like a dog that had been kenneled. A senior CIA debriefer told the agency's inspector general that she heard stories of detainees at Cobalt that hung on days for end with their toes barely touching the ground, choked, being deprived of food, and made the subject of mock assassinations. Detainees there were subject to sleep deprivation, shackled to bars with their hands above their heads. In fact, four of 20 cells at Cobol were found to have bars across the cell to allow this. Going back to Gaul Rahman, the CIA held him in a prison cell where he was deprived of sleep for 48 hours. Speakers were set up in the prison, and music was played at blaringly high decibels. This achieved two goals. For one, it helped break the prisoner down mentally. But it was also helpful in keeping prisoners from communicating with one another. Rahman was shackled to a cold cement wall in his cell, where the temperature would get as low as 36 degrees Fahrenheit. He wore a sweatshirt, but was stripped naked from the waist down. He was also denied food. As stated in the Daily Beast article, his likely cause of death was hypothermia, which is another way of saying he froze to death. The cell Rahman died in was referred to by the CIA as a concrete box, was designed specifically for sleep deprivation. It was stated that Rahman had been uncooperative with guards at Salt Pit and had threatened them violently. His torture and subsequent death are often believed to have been a response to that. More so than simply for his status as a detained terrorist, this was considered by many to have been a war crime. But in the end, no one was ever charged for his death. Gaul Rahman's death was a stain on the CIA's history still haunting it today. His death was blamed on a number of factors, not the least of which the fact that mostly junior members of the CIA were the ones charged with the task of running the Salt Pit Prison. This was changed following his death, and senior members at the CIA compound in Langley, Virginia, were brought in to oversee the interrogations with the hope of solving the problem. Rahman was low on the totem pole, considerably speaking. He was essentially just a foot soldier, and likely didn't even have pertinent information. But what could the CIA do when they actually caught up with a high-ranking Al-Qaeda member? Torture aside, it certainly wouldn't be in anyone's best interest to kill such a person. Unlike Rahman, intelligence they could provide might actually be of some value. In the spring of 2002... That question was answered when Zayn al-Abidin, Muhammad Hussein, also known as Abu Zubaydah, was captured. His capture was described as messy, and he suffered a gunshot wound from an AK-47 to the testicle, stomach, and thigh. But Zubaydah was considered a major step towards progress in the war on terror at the time. Within al-Qaeda, he was sent by the CIA to be someone who helped arrange travel for its members. He was also thought to have overseen and managed many terrorist operations. This was potentially game-changing and needed to be handled carefully, even if not for the sake of human rights, 
It was tactically smart to keep this person alive, so the dire information could be procured. Initially, he was appreciative to his American captors, much to the surprise of the CIA. The wound to his thigh was actually quite severe and could very well have killed him. Also, there was a good chance that even if he'd survived, his leg would be lost. American forces didn't allow this to happen. They actually got him the best medical attention they could manage and saved not only his life, but his leg. This was achieved by flying a doctor out from John Hopkins University to personally attend to his wound. This was something of a shock to him, and he outwardly showed gratitude for this. According to Zubaydah, if things had gone the other way around, members of Al-Qaeda would have amputated his leg and thought nothing of it. This isn't to say he was all smiles and thank yous. The bottom line was, he had been captured, and he still hated his captors and had zero intentions of cooperating with their interrogations. His questioning couldn't begin immediately due to his medical treatment, but once he was healed up, CIA agents began wondering exactly where he could be detained long term. Questioning needed to commence, but not on U.S. soil. The CIA wanted to keep him in international waters if possible, where the laws about interrogations were less clear. They could run their debriefing any way they saw fit. It was suggested that a cruise ship or oil platform be leased for this, but these ideas were ultimately shot down. Finally, it was determined that Zubaydah would be held at Cat's Eye Prison in Thailand. When taking in a prisoner... It was common practice for them to be strip-searched to make sure weapons were not being taken into detainment facilities. Furthermore, it was also common to photograph prisoners nude as a kind of before photo so that any subsequent injuries inflicted upon the prisoner would be unidentifiable. Prior to the Department of Justice's approval of what they called, quote, harsh interrogation techniques on Zubaydah, the CIA was already using sleep deprivation techniques on him. These could be described as long periods of disorientation that could last for many days or weeks. Prisoners were forced to stand for long periods of time, their arms shackled above their heads and not allowed to rest. This would disorient the prisoner to the point that they would lose track of time and create an insatiable need for rest. There was no access to watches or clocks or even the ability to observe natural light. Even without the issue of sleep deprivation, this would be disorienting. Sometimes Zubaydah would finally be told that he could sleep for the night, only to be woken up approximately two hours later. When he would complain that he didn't feel rested, he was gaslit by interrogators and told that he'd received a full eight hours of sleep. Considering the fact that he had no access to any form of timekeeping device, he would have no idea if this was true or not. This actually wound up being one of the more effective uses of harsh interrogations against detainees, as the person in question would almost always grow delirious and relinquish some level of information against his accomplices. As previously stated, it was being used prior to the Department of Justice's approval, but eventually the DOJ did approve it, along with nine other harsh interrogation techniques, which were determined to be torture. While using the previously described sleep deprivation technique against Zubaydah, he finally broke and gave some tidbits of information. These tidbits were not at all a goldmine of information the CIA had been waiting for, but it seemed to be a start. He spoke of plans to get weapons of mass destructions inside the United States, 
It also gave the CIA interrogators the name of Jose Padilla, an American citizen. Padilla was arrested shortly after his name was mentioned, when he tried to re-enter the United States through Chicago. As you can see, this was not the same situation as MKUltra. It was still well known that Zubaydah was keeping the vast majority of his secrets. With a second wave of terrorism seemingly imminent, the agency didn't feel it had time to wait around for slivers of information. They needed everything. They needed everything he had, and they wanted it now. Meanwhile, the FBI was not cooperating with the CIA. They were adversaries. Then-director of the FBI, Robert Mueller, refused to participate in what he called, quote, harsh interrogation techniques. People in the CIA didn't regard him negatively for this, but at the same time they were frustrated by lack of cooperation. Today, many look back at this decision to refrain from this as smart, believing he could see what when tempers weren't flying so high in the future, all this would come back to make the CIA look like. If so, he was correct. Likely, he didn't want the same stain tarnishing the FBI. Without cooperation from the FBI, the CIA was essentially on their own with torturing Zubaydah, who was not being cooperative. He'd go into long diatribes about seemingly important operations or Al-Qaeda members who were planning heinous acts. Then he would end the story by telling officials that the person to which he was referring had died many years ago. He would give short, glib answers to questions, and it was difficult for agents to discern if he was even being honest or not. This proved to be a serious conundrum. Furthermore, Zubida was beginning to charm some of the CIA agents. Some ascribed questioning him to being similar to how you would expect things to go if you were interrogating a Jedi Knight. He even had a good sense of humor and could make the agents question him laugh once in a while. This wouldn't do, especially considering the White House was pressing the CIA every day, asking what Zubida had revealed. It was getting tiring having nothing to report back. This ultimately led the Department of Justice approving interrogation techniques. That would later be determined to be torture. Bush administration officials Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, John Ashcroft, Donald Rumsfeld, and Vice President Dick Cheney all met to discuss these techniques. At the White House, Cheney admits to having signed off on it. Condoleezza Rice in 2009 maintained that she didn't believe it to be torture, that it was legal, and that it was the right thing to do. As for the harsh interrogation techniques approved by the Department of Justice, first, there were ten of them in all, but many proposed got shot down. From Philip Mudd's book, Blackside, they are outlined. Furthermore, some of the torture methods rejected by the DOJ are also discussed. 1. Attention Grasp grabbing a detainee forcibly by the collar, pulling him closer to the interrogator to gain his attention. 2. Cramped confinement, placing a detainee in a dark, tight space. 3. Insects, placing a detainee in a confinement box with insects. 4. Facial hold, holding a detainee's face immobile during questioning. 5. Facial slap, slapping a detainee with spread fingers to induce shock, surprise, or humiliation. 6. Sleep deprivation, forcing detainees to remain upright and ensuring that they either did not sleep 
or slept for short periods, sometimes for days at a time. 7. Stress positions. Uncomfortable positions in which a prisoner might be handcuffed with his feet shackled to the floor, resulting in leg muscle fatigue. 8. Wall standing. The detainee faces a wall, standing far out, so he has to reach to place his fingers against the wall in front of him. 9. Walling. Pushing a detainee against a flexible wall. And 10. Waterboarding. The CIA had already done some shady stuff with depriving Zubaydah of sleep without the DOJ's consent, so it got the permission it desired and was now ready to go back in with the blessing of the government. Following these actions, Abu Zubaydah was waterboarded. Later, he described the process. Quote, I was put on what looked like a hospital bed and was strapped down very tightly with belts. A black cloth was then placed over my face and the interrogators used a mineral water bottle to pour water on the cloth so that I could not breathe. After a few minutes, the cloth was removed and the bed was rotated into an upright position. The pressure of the straps on my wounds caused severe pain. I vomited. The bed was then again lowered to a horizontal position, and the same torture carried out with the black cloth over my face, and the water poured on from a bottle. On this occasion, my head was in a more backward-downwards position, and the water was poured on for a longer time. I struggled without success to breathe. I thought I was going to die. I lost control of my urine. Since then, I still lose control of my urine when under stress. Zubidon was reportedly waterboarded some 83 times during his detainment by the CIA. He was regularly stripped naked, slammed into walls, subjected to countless hours of loud music being played at near-deafening volumes. At a certain point, he became so compliant that an agent only had to snap his fingers twice, and Zubaydah would immediately lie down on a board and submit to waterboarding without even needing to be asked. The CIA was not unaware that this treatment of Zubaydah was illegal. In fact, according to a report by the New Yorker, they informed their superiors that if Zubaydah died while in custody, he would need to be cremated, and if he is to remain in custody at the conclusion of his interrogation, he would need to be kept isolated from the world and unable to communicate with anyone for the remainder of his life. The superiors confirmed that this would be taken care of. Zubaydah lost his left eye while in custody. How the eye was lost still remains a question to this day. What we do know is that when he was captured, he had two functional eyes. When he left the CIA custody in 2006, he was missing an eye and donning a black eye patch. An official spokesperson for the CIA states that he had a pre-existing eye condition, which deteriorated while in custody, and that medical attention for the condition was not a top priority. According to Zubaydah's lawyer, even Zubaydah himself does not really recall how he lost his eye. It's worth noting here that there did exist numerous videos of his interrogations, but all these videos were destroyed in 2005. The obvious elephant standing in the room, is it possible Zubaydah's eyes was gouged out during interrogation? And the equally obvious answer is yes, it's certainly possible. As you probably suspected, the previous outline 10, Department of Justice approved, quote, Enhanced interrogation techniques were not the only methods of torture used on prisoners. 
There is no shortage of horrific stories from the declassified CIA documents, often referred to as the CIA torture report. To get meta for a minute, between those documents and the ones detailing MKUltra, it's enough to keep Obscura busy for approximately three months just trying to figure out what all should be included, and unfortunately, what has to end up on the cutting room floor. What I will say is that these two episodes are just foundational episodes for what the CIA has done. Documented incidents of committing crime. I wanted to cover the Watergate stuff, the MK Ultra stuff, the CIA torture, the stuff that we all sort of know about and get into more detail about. But that really is just the tip of the iceberg. You see, before I eventually get into the rest, which won't be for a while, but before we get there, you need that foundation, right? To understand that this isn't conspiracy stuff. This isn't zany, they're turning the frogs gay, etc. type stuff, you know? This is serious. This is These are crimes that were committed. They happened. People's lives were affected. How you feel about those people's lives is a one discussion, but the fact that they happened is another. So no, this isn't the end of the CIA episodes, but this is the end for now. We will be delving in again eventually for two, hey, maybe four parts more altogether once all of the research is done eventually. But the thing is, I know a true crime variety is sort of what keeps things interesting. So, this is where the two parts on the CIA stop for now. And we will roll back to them eventually. But, for now, thank you for listening. And, this isn't over. So, keep the fire burning.